Hey everyone, John Worth, I'm here. It is a Sports Illustrated tennis podcast. It is the morning after the 2019 US Open has concluded. We are bleary-eyed, but we are here to recap the tournament and offer some thoughts while memories are still fresh and we're still trying to process what we saw about 12 hours ago. I'm joined by Dan Rappaport, young ascending reporter, a Medvedev of sports media, if you will. <laughs> I'll take it. Welcome. Thank you. You've had Good a strong summer. Yeah, you know, I don't know if it was as good as Medvedev's, but, you know, for, for me, it was not so bad. You don't look uh, quite as tired, so uh, so that's a good sign. I didn't, I uh, wasn't out there for four, yeah. four hours and 49 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> you pushed it all to a fifth set. Mm-hmm. So, um, you were at the match last night, I was at the match last night. Um, I feel like I need to gather my thoughts, because I'm still trying to figure out how much of this was about the tennis, how much of this was about Rafa perhaps tightening a bit, and how much of it was just this really courageous surge by... Medvedev. So we'll recap the whole tournament, but we may as well start with the most recent match and the recency effect. Uh, how, how did you? You wrote about this. I mean, how mm-hmm. did you? How did you characterize and encapsulate this match? I thought it was very sort of generational undertones. Um, you know, it was it feel, felt like the first time in a long time, uh, if ever, that one of the big three in, in this advanced stage of their of their career were challenged by a guy young in their 20s in the final. We've seen Wawrinka, we've seen you know Chilich make his run, but they were sort of 27, 28. Wawrinka, I think, was 29 when he won his first. So, so. a 10-year age gap. 10-year age gap, and this was the first guy of the next generation to show some real guts. Um, you know, He could have given up so easily down two sets and a break to the most rel- relentless player probably in the history of the sport, a guy who was 208-1, and one, uh, went up two sets to love after winning the first two sets. Uh, he could have packed it in, right? I mean, just... Rested on his amazing summer and collected his 1.9 million runner-up check and, and gotten home at a reasonable hour. But he, he showed some fight that I'm not sure we knew him or anyone in his generation was ready to show just yet. You wrote this story. This is a drill. Uh, I, feel, I feel like it's a rite of passage if you're on the tennis beat to uh, cover these major finals on Sundays with tight deadlines. It used to be there were tight magazine deadlines. Mm-hmm. Now it's tight web deadline. If I give you truth serum, did, did you pre-write this piece at all? I mean, there's there's obviously storylines that you're that you're ready for each person. So you know, if Medvedev wins, it's obviously the the, the changing of the guard, and it's um, this this sort of watershed moment in the sport where a 23 year old guy beats one of these uh, you know titans of the sport who have been ruling forever. Um, but I had a story. I, I went to the media center after Nadal was up two sets and a break because it seemed like all the world <laughs> right, like it's over, right. and it's like okay, well Nadal. You know, dominant. Good, good, good effort by the kid. Nadal wins 19. Good effort carry by the kid. On, yeah, on. I mean, no, no shame in that. But Nadal is, you know, at his best. But then, once he wins the fourth set, I, I raced back into Arthur Ashe and watched what was what was a really, really entertaining last two hours. And I think the the crowd there was, you know, for them to chant Medvedev's name, given who his opponent was, given his history at the tournament, was <laughs> it's eight day history. Yeah, I mean, but it's still it was it was a roller coaster for sure. He he, he took a brief but but very aggressive foray into into Villa. <laughs> he decided he didn't like it. Yeah. Actually, seems like a thoroughly decent guy. Everyone loves a winner, right? I mean, it just I think it just shows that if you, uh, and it's kind of a lesson for curious, you know, like it's nothing is beyond reproach if you decide that you want to put the put the shtick behind you and really just get stick to tennis and show the effort then your efforts can be rewarded and, and received by the fans so here my I was struck by uh, I'll take the Nadal side of this mm-hmm. which is the last time he played a five set match in a major final 2017 Australian Open he's up 3-1 up a break against mm-hmm. Roger Federer all sorts of greatest of all time implications and he doesn't close the match mm-hmm. Federer wins, it catapults Federer, it's this great match, Federer nudges in the head-to-head. I mean, that one 
45 minute interval of tennis has these echoes for decades. So we're coming off a of Wimbledon final, bear in mind, when Federer had match points and couldn't close. Mm-hmm. Nadal has, he had a break point at four all in the third set. He converts that, he serves for number 19, we all go home. Mm-hmm. Two hours later, as you said, very entertaining stuff. Medvedev has really endeared himself. For some reason, he has not seemed to have tired a bit. Nadal. I think part of that has to do with how slowly Nadal plays in the match. Well, it was four and a half hours, but I feel like there was a lot that's of a, time. That's a really, let's get to that's a really good point. You know what I'm saying? But, like, uh, it's not five hours of continuous action. It's no, exactly. waiting for 30 seconds after exactly. every point. Um, we just, we'll hold that thought, because we should talk the time a little bit. But um, but anyway, N- Nadal loses the third set, loses the fourth set. He's up a double break in the fifth, gets broken. And now at 5-4, he steps up to the line to try and serve out this match. He's got the history of Australia 2017. He's got the recent history having watched Roger fail to close at Wimbledon six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. The courage it took, and this will not make any greatest hits, not any highlight reel. This is not one of these sort of games that will be replayed. But for Nadal to have the courage to serve that out mm-hmm. with everything on the line, I think is one of these like plot points in not just he faced a break the point, season. too. Yeah, he, yeah and, and he, I think he was down left 30. He was netting every serve. Mm-hmm. I thought he was the more tired of the two players. Yeah. I thought Nadal serving that out at 5-4 was one of the great moments of, of courage I've seen in uh, in this sport in a long time. Yeah, so I was thinking about this as I, I was on the ride home yesterday. I think part of the reason why Nadal was able to do it is, I, I, you know, you, you've written a lot about how Federer is, puts everything into perspective, and he's, he's such a thinker, and, and he knows his place in history. I don't know if Nadal has those same sort of thoughts. I don't know if he's thinking all the history stuff that we're thinking about. I don't know if he's thinking, this is monumental for my, you know, this will pull me within to 19. I think he has this ability to, to like, a singular focus on, on the point at hand. And I'm not saying Federer doesn't have that, but I think Federer is a bit more cerebral. Right. And I think he's right. probably more aware of the implications, whereas Nadal is just thinking, I've got to get this point in, and there's this serve in, and there's absolutely no option otherwise. I think yeah, it's, it's very narrow, his focus, which helps him, I think. Um, let's, I mean, I, I don't want to dwell on it, because I don't want it to overshadow the match, but I do think... There's a kind. Of, I, I do. I don't want to neglect it outright either. You mentioned the time. You're mm-hmm. a golf guy. <laughs> Stickler for rules in golf. Yes. Um, but we don't. We have pace of play rules that we don't enforce. So this was pretty amazing to see in the not enforced pace of play rules. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's this, um, that's an issue here. I mean, you know, Nadal was dinged obviously early in the match. I we, we all love Nadal. We all find that as, as a sportsman, he's beyond reproach. Mm-hmm. I gotta say though, I mean. How many times do you have to look out and see this serve clock down to zero? How many times do you have to see the opponent step up to the line to serve and Nadal returning is still toweling off? At the yeah, that, that, that was worse, I think, than... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not new to tennis, but I'm newer. Like, is it is it not the the server should dictate the play, right? He yeah. shouldn't have to the wait for the returner, right? Play, right. So, I mean, I think that was that was worse optics than, than Nadal getting dinged was. This guy's ready to serve. He's hitting aces and you're still toweling off. That just seems almost... It's inconsiderate, right? I mean, shouldn't shouldn't the server be allowed to to serve at his pace? Like, if Federer or Kyrgios wants to play quickly, shouldn't they be, they have the right to do that, don't they? The rule is you pay, the the rule is that you play the pace of the server. So why 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 would the referee ding Nadal for not being ready to serve, but not ding him for when he wasn't allowing Medvedev to be ready to serve? It feels like that would be the more natural place to to draw the line. It's like, you know, if you want to be a little slow, then okay, whatever, but let this other guy at least serve at his tempo he wants to play at. No, and I think that, I mean, Medvedev during the match was... I thought it's a delicate situation, and you don't want to turn this into a circus, and, and the New York crowds and the booing. I mean, I think you need to manage the situation, but I do think, honestly, Nadal was, was not in the right. And 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You mentioned the other factor too, which is um, I, I think when you have a tired opponent and you have this elaborate set of rituals and you're toweling off and you have the, the various sort of whatever we're calling them, ticks and hitches and rituals, I think that uh, that really is to Nadal's detriment. I mean, it, it sort of you know neuters your body blows when you're giving this guy 30 seconds to catch his breath between, uh, between every point. I, I thought sort of tactically this pace of play also did not work to his benefit. But does he ever hasten it? Is, is, is no, he... I mean, his, his attitude is like, I have my routine. Yeah. And, and there's an, I, honestly, I do think there's an element of I'm a nine-time, 19-time major champion. Yeah. Um, he has his rituals. He, I mean, there, were, there was a one game, service game with Curious won a service game in something like 28 seconds. Granted, he was serving aces, but, you know, yeah. it's, it's step up to the line, bounce boom. the ball once, boom. Mm-hmm. This it's is refreshing. something different entirely, and I think Nadal's attitude is this is me, this is as much a part of my game as the high-bouncing forehand and, you know, s- slicing in the corner. Yeah, I mean, I think I was very surprised that the umpire, given the recent history of the U.S. Open, decided, actually inserted himself in the match there, and I understand what the rules are, but how was he not thinking about last year? He, maybe he was, and he, and he was you know trying to make a point that the rules are the no, rules. No, that's what I think. Like, I, when uh, the crowd, it was like um, deja vu. It was like, is this really right. happening again? Because, I mean, if you think about this, let's say he loses the match. Okay, Let's say that now that I've converts the break point at 5-4. So what happened was Nadal is serving at 5-2. Nadal is serving at 5-2, and there's a break point, and then he gets a time violation and goes immediately to the second serve, and he doubles. Right. And he lo- he gets broken. Right. So if he ends up losing the match, that is a hugely impactful decision there, and it would be the second U.S. Open final, second year in a row, where in the U.S. Open final, on the biggest stage of the sport, the umpire becomes yeah, a exactly. main story. I don't, the, I don't know if the behind-closed doors of the U.S. Open officials... I, yeah, I'd be interested I mean, to see what they think about that I mean, this is activist. Jo- I mean, this is spirit of the law versus letter of the law. I mean, this is something that any arbiter has to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a lawyer. I think, yeah, I mean, you're kind of damned either way, right? I mean, on the one hand, you say, come on, man, it's the fifth set of the U.S. Open final. You have all this history. You've got a rowdy crowd. Like, stand down, Mr. Uh, guy in the lifeguard chair. Mm-hmm. The flip side is, like, rules are rules. And if... You know, we don't say, oh, it's a, it's a three-pointer this time, but a two-pointer the next time. I mean, at some level, you need consistency. Yeah, there's you no also right need answer. discretion, so there's no right answer. Anyway, um, what um, day before, we had a... We almost, I said, you get one unicorn per tournament. And yeah. I almost... I almost uh, it was almost one of those tweets that didn't age well. Yeah. But um, Medvedev couldn't quite close, but um, 19-year-old Bianca Andrescu sure could. You were at the women's final as well. Yeah, I mean, if... if that was also a remarkable display of resilience. Uh, the the crowd was probably the most p- partisan crowd in a non-team sport that I've, I've ever seen. Really? I mean, it was I- incredibly loud and, and 95% for one person. When she was missing first serves, they were going crazy. So you're, you're 19 years old. You're playing against the greatest player in the history of women's tennis. This is your first Grand Slam final. You have First U.S. Open. First U.S. Open. First U.S. Open. You're, you're up 5-1. You get bro- broken twice. It's five five. The crowd is going insane. <laughs> How easy would it have been to fold right there? I mean, I can't think of a more a more trying situation for you to be put into in your first major right. final 
the greatest player of all time is making this remarkable comeback, and the crowd is going insane. I had the exact same thought. And I, she holds on. I thought if if she, if she had gone out there and lost six two six two, everybody said Serena is an amazing player, and she's tied this record. And boy, this nineteen year old Canadian, she really proved that she's no fluke, and mm-hmm. everybody goes home happy. When you're up six two five one match points, and you don't close, you're thinking at five all. You're thinking. A, Serena's going to win this match, and B, is this poor kid ever going to recover from being on the precipice of winning a major and capitulating? I thought it was going to be 7-5-6-0. Seven, seven, I, I honestly exactly, did. Exactly. I mean, it you, just you looked were, like the momentum uh, exactly. was completely exactly. in Serena's hands. It seemed like this moment where she was going to do this, you know, the symmetry 20 years after she wins her first one. It's at the U.S. Right. Open. It's at her home major. She's, uh, you know, after she's rewriting history after last year. You're right, the crowd and Meghan Markle. It was all written. It was, it was all written. And everybody's lead was written. And this is Serena Williams' story. I mean, I had my own. This is the Serena Williams story in a nutshell was writ small in this one tennis match. Mm-hmm. And then at five all, you and know, the, and there, I don't know if you can see I don't know if they showed this on TV. Um, and Dreskew at one point literally put both her fingers in her ears. Yeah, they showed it. Like, um, literally trying to block out the noise. But that shows you... Uh, <laughs> She clearly was feeling it, yeah. and then at five all, she put her foot down. And she, she, I think it showed a lot of maturity. She understood what was happening. You know, she didn't sort of seem like a deer in the headlights. Yeah, she right, knew, okay, right. the, the reason they're behind this is because she's the greatest player of all time, because she's going for major number twenty-four, and because this crowd loves her. It's not not a representation of me. It's not. Uh, she didn't take any offense to it. She just, like you said, she put her, her literally put her fingers to her ears, blocked out the noise, and and focused on the tennis. And her tennis is is something to watch. That forehand is is one of the. Most most impressive shots for a teenager that I've ever the, seen. Uh, so here here are two of my takeaways of this tournament. One was led by Nick Curios, but this sometimes I know, yeah, I'm sure you hear this too that tennis is boring, and I used to love tennis when it was McEnroe and Connors, and where's the personalities? And mm-hmm. tennis has sort of had its day. I thought just sheer competition as a sporting event. This was riveting. Mm-hmm. There were so many matches that was you know, Monfils and Berrettini. I mean, you, there were good. Once a day, there was one match that was Great transfixing. The other thing is this: oh, they just stand back and bash the ball. You know, Medvedev went to the what, Medvedev won more than fifty points at the net. Yeah, I was and impressed with his volley. The two of them volley is great. I mm-hmm. mean, Nadal and Medvedev more than a hundred points won at the net. They were drop shotting in part because Nadal was returning serve from uh, you know the Jamaica Canarsie train station. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, same with Andrescu, moon balls and lobs yeah. and, and all these funky angles. I thought that. Um, Tennis as a sp- sort of an exodus no sport had a very good tournament. Yeah, I think there's there's beauty and variety. I think that is there's something nostalgic about it too. There's a nostalgic appeal of the days when you know the McEnroes and the Wood come into the net and chip and charge, and it's refreshing to see to see that make a comeback. And I thought that was something that Medvedev did extremely well is 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 try to incorporate variety and show that there is a place for it, um, even against someone like Nadal, even against some of the best players in the world. That you know, no one is above having difficulty with someone who's chipping, someone who's you know, hitting moon balls, and, and it, it's it's fun to watch guys who aren't just standing back there and just hitting heavy topspin to each other, you know, until the first guy makes an error. First match point for Nadal, maybe it was a second. Second serve, Medvedev, serve and volleys. Mm-hmm. Say, wait, this is a six-foot-six-inch Russian who you think is just going to sort of stand back at the baseline and, yeah. and bash. Second serve, down match point, <laughs> finally, just says, yeah. the hell with this, I'm trying to Nadal miss the return. return. Yeah. And, uh, I think that might have been a... Maybe a hint of fatigue there. Like uh, I don't know if I want to, you know, stand back there and beat and, and just just shorten it up. But it worked. Nadal uh, again. Nadal's volleys, absolutely second to none. Yeah. But Nadal too. Some of those, um, some of those set. Po- I think both set points for Medvedev were won 
passing the dial on, on server volley. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and we haven't even mentioned Taylor Townsend yet. Yeah. Um, other uh, takeaways from the this was the final major of the decade, and here's where we are. We have the big three rolling. Yeah. A I mean, bit of a, my, a my bit of erosion. So my thing is like, my first the match that got really got me into tennis was the 2008 Wimbledon final. Um, with with Nadal, I'm sure I'm not alone in that. You obviously have a, a history with that. But I remember I remember the the stories that came out the next day where that Federer you know was, was done. He was he was 20. I think he was 27 or 28, and it was that was that was the changing of the, <laughs> the king has been deposed. And I remember I remember thinking like 2008 2009 when he when he kind of made a little resurgence and won a couple of majors. I was like okay great at least he got these ones because it's not going to last much longer. Right. Uh, I was I think 13 when that match happened, oh, and geez. and that, you know I was really? before my bar mitzvah I really? think or maybe it was yeah. No, it was after my bar mitzvah. But then now I'm I'm here and I'm I'm, I'm writing about these guys who I grew up thinking that Federer was completely done. It's it's their longevity is unbelievable. All all three of them. The fact that they're still here. The fact that the last three years of the decade, 17, 18, 19, all four majors on the men's side were won by some combination of Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic. It's unbelievable. And uh, you know, 24 hours ago, we would say who's gonna? We don't even have an obvious successor. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think for a lot of players, I don't know who would admit this. Publicly, I would love to truth serum some of these players and say, "How many of you guys honestly are just sort of waiting for these guys to retire, mm -hmm. and then you'll go make your bones?" And that's what I think was so compelling about last night is he did he what he didn't wait. He wasn't yeah, he wasn't yeah, waiting yeah. at all. He's the first one I really think of that generation to look one of these guys in the face on the biggest stage of the sport, down two sets and a break, and say, "I'm not quitting. I know who you are. I'm not quitting. I'm here." And I'm gonna play you every last point to make go you work. Go ahead, beat me. Beat me. You're up two. You're up two breaks in the final set serving the match. I'm gonna break you the first time, and I'm gonna get break points in the second one too. It was an unbelievable sort of truth to power moment of I, I know who Nadal is, but I'm Medvedev. So. You don't scare me. Um, and Jim Courier made this point too. He said you don't think the other players in the locker room take note. You don't think that that was a huge victory for Medvedev now when he's on the other side of the net that these guys know. He's he's he surpasses Zverev and Tsitsipas now. He's sort of the the leader of that you know twenty to twenty four generation. Right. It would how you it would seem, at least now. I mean, team is still there. But he's a little bit older. I mean, yeah. He, I mean, team team's already turned twenty six. Is he twenty six now? Twenty six used to be. Uh, you, you've passed your exactly. Meridian. He's, he's yeah. one year younger than Federer was, or maybe two when Federer lost the two thousand eight right. final, and everyone thought he was done. John McEnroe did not win a major after. Age twenty five. Yeah, and I was so, just uh, I was just rewatching the two thousand one when Federer beat Sampras, and Sampras was twenty. Wimbledon the Wimbledon match. Yeah. Sampras is twenty nine, and they're talking about him like he is ancient, ancient, ancient like yeah. he is a relic of a right. bygone era, <laughs> and he's four years younger than the doll is, nine years younger than twenty nine. Twenty nine years old tennis. You used to have your food cut up into small bites for you because you <laughs> like uh, how old was Borg when he was super young too when he thing, stopped right yeah, after twenty five nothing. Yeah, um, we like this trend, right? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 nice to be to have longer to 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 relish with these you know these all time greats. It's 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 better to have them around for twelve years, I think, than for than for four years. But I think there's also a medium a middle ground. I think right. Right. the women's game has had you know Serena is still there, but there's Osaka and there's you know Simona Halep and there's these new crop of stars. I think it, we're not trying to push these guys out the door by any stretch, but we want. These new guys, we want more Neil Medvedevs to come up and, and challenge them and have a sort of seamless transition. I, can't, I wish I could credit. I wish I remembered who said this. Um, but someone was quick. Ben Rothenberg out of Clary. So, somebody was quick to point out that 
the there is no player in their twenties that has won a major. So no yeah. no player. I wrote, born, I wrote that in the. Story. No player born in the nineties has won a men's major, but the yeah. women already have their first champion born in the two thousands. Yeah, that's that's yeah because it's, it's good, Del Potro and, and Chilich both turned thirty this year, so no one right. yeah no man in their twenties has a major. That's incredible. Yeah, and then to your point, you have you know Sloane Stevens and you have Osaka and you've mm-hmm. got you know Hollop has now put together a Hall of Fame career, and now we have a nineteen year old. Yeah. A nineteen-year-old who I think what's also what's so awesome about her is just her attitude. She's a she's a true alpha. Like she doesn't take crap from right. I think anyone. She's really found a nice sweet spot between. She's not distasteful. No, I, mean, I don't think you see her and you say, "Ooh, you know, arrogant." She's just super confident. It's just super confident, and mm-hmm. she's very upfront about it. And I think we have we have come a long way. I mean, there's there's a broader discussion here. I don't know when I first started covering. Tennis. Uh, were, were women your, screaming like "Come on" and stuff? Was that a your thing back then? Bar mitzvah days. I'll, I'll tell you two things that have changed. One, one exactly. If, if this were twenty years ago when I started covering tennis, and she's screaming "Come on," and she's going into her first major saying like "I have very high expectations of myself," I do think there would have been this sense of, "Boy, talk about arrogant." Mm-hmm. Someone needs to put her in her place. Um, the flip side, I'm really struck by the sorority, the sisterhood on the women's tour these days. Yeah. And we always, we sort of talk sometimes and it's, it's, it's very borderline sexist, but I think it's just this outmoded as, oh, it's, it's high school and it's cat fights and yeah. teen girls. It's no. really not. I mean, yeah. the, I think the tweets and the texts and the embraces at the net, I think there's a real sense of collegiality now. Yeah, I think the way Serena reacted to after losing um, was so nice to see, especially after last she year. She, yeah. she was like, you know, if there was anyone besides Venus, who I would want to win this one, it's, it's Bianca, because I think she has a, a ton of respect for, I don't know if she sees some of herself in her, but she, you know, she was that teenager once who was super confident, super powerful, and ready to win majors, ready to, to do things at such a young age, so I think she appreciates someone who not only is that talented, but somebody who has their the mind of a champion already at such a young age. And yeah, you saw an outpouring of support from Sloane Stevens, Jeannie Bouchard congratulated her. She, Jeannie Bouchard probably thought she was going to be the first Canadian to win a major yeah, exactly. sometime, but but it's it's Andrescu and and this also I think I I saw a lot of a lot of stuff on social media. This was a big deal in Canada, like a really really big deal the, in the, Canada. The prime minister is like doing cartwheels by the time they're shaking hands at the net. This was a big deal in Canada, and it's so nice to see. You, you know, you never think of. Canadian tennis, but they're my, having uh, a real a real moment right no, now. No, it's great, and I think some of it is um, some of it's just by virtue of the fact she's Canadian. I think there's also a recognition that first Canada is having a sort of mini tennis boom, mm-hmm. but also I think there's a lot of just fondness for this kid. Yeah, and she's a cool kid, and she's, she is. She's, I you know she has a certain foundation of self belief. Yeah, that, you mean, think she's uh, number one in the world this time next year? Uh, if she is healthy. I will give. I mean, she. You got to see her schedule. You got to see her. If you want to, this is for the, the listeners out there. If you want to, uh, you want to have a good laugh. Go to her results page at WTA. She starts the season, of course, outside the top one hundred. Yeah. I mean, this this time last year, she's playing twenty five thousand events, and she's not she's not winning all of them either. So when did the uptick start? And she goes starts the year and has this very strong tournament. Beats Venus. Beats Wozniacki. And qualifies for the Australian Open. Oh man, she's really good. And everyone's asking Tom Tebbett, the dean of Canadian tennis. Boy, we knew about Felix and uh, and Shabo, Dennis, yeah. but uh, tell tell us more about uh, Bianca. And she wins this Oracle event, and she wins Indian Wells, of course. So she lost to Sonia Kennan, I think March first. Tight match, Acapulco. Kennan goes on, uh, I think, I think to reach the final, to win, reach the final. Um, 
Anyway, Andrescu wins Indian Wells. Holy moly, this kid is really something. And she's yeah. winning tight matches and she's beating Kerber. And she plays Miami when she probably shouldn't have. And she basically doesn't play again until Toronto. So she plays one match uh, at the French Open and then she can't play her second. She's in too much pain. So she basically plays nothing at full health from Indian Wells to Toronto. That's a huge chunk of the season. Yeah. I mean, that's just so she's one clay court win. So she many missed, chances. missed Wimbledon, and yeah. she's still, whatever she is, five in the world. She's number five. Can you, can you imagine what her ranking would be if she... Yeah, if she gets quarters and a exactly. couple quarters, couple semis. Yeah, she's probably number one or number two. She's she's probably number one in the world if yeah. she played just in marginal schedule with marginal results. I mean, think so about if, if you were doing like a power ranking, sort of an AP-style poll of women's tennis right now, would you have her as the she's best player one. in the world? If, if the season ended today... She's your MVP. And she wins player of the year. Player of the year. So never mind the, any of this kind of newcomer of the year crap. Yeah. I mean, she's she's your MVP. Yeah. She's 8-0 against top 10 players. That's a, one of the most remarkable stats. Has, has anyone ever started their career, eight man or woman, 8-0 against top? It's, it's hard crazy. to believe. Under different circumstances. Different, yeah. Three sets sometimes. And so she's won Indian Wells. She's won... How do you think her, her game translates to different to different? Because you only really see her play on hard courts. Yeah, I mean that's that's what's interesting about her game too. It has so many varieties, and she has a lot of gears. I don't see any reason why uh, this doesn't translate to clay. Yeah, clay for sure. Grass is. She's a know. jock. She's an athlete. I yeah. Mean, today's today's grass. She could probably pick up. I mean, I think injuries are going to be an issue, and I think the other thing too that we are less inclined to talk about is she's going to go through this ringer. I mean, I don't know if it's Naomi Osaka level. Yeah, that's what I say. I think Osaka is sort of a case study in what happens after you win. Yeah, I mean, I think Osaka has a few things. One is the whole controversy, right? So she won her first major in such, I don't know if controversy is the right word necessarily, but in an unconventional way. But it was a talking, you know, J.K. Rowell, I mean, this was a big deal a final a year ago. Every There's, writer wrote about it. Everyone wrote about mm-hmm. it. Everyone sort of waited to see, could she legitimize it? Everyone had a take. Um, there was the whole Japanese media thing, which is like nothing people have ever seen. Yeah. I mean, we, we share a facility with them. In I saw them interviewing the uh, some junior lost in like the second round or something, Some and there was straight up 15 people around yeah, exactly, him interviewing him. Exactly. Poor, poor kid. Uh, I always tell the story where... Uh, where, where are those travel budgets coming yeah, from? Yeah, no kidding. Who, who knew that... Uh, who basically wow, 18 wow, outlets. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anytime to we to the see US. Uh, media travel budgets uh, look like that, we're happy instinctively. Yeah, yeah. Just good for of, them. Uh, exactly, good for them. But yeah, but I, I don't think Bianca's going to have quite the Japanese media, you know, quite quite the uh, equivalent. They're of too that. nice in Canada. They don't um, want to get in their, their space. Yeah, if I uh, if I might have a moment of your time. Yeah, uh, I mean, I also think Bianca's just kind of cut out for it, and Naomi Osaka, I think, is much more introverted. She's shy. It seems yeah. like who's this this um, this woman who's sort of been thrust into the spotlight. Maybe you get the sense if you ask her behind closed doors, she doesn't maybe want to be doing all the stuff that she's doing. You're talking about Osaka. Osaka. I'm talking about all the endorsements and all the commercials. No, exactly, and, exactly. You know, she definitely would rather focus on the tennis. Whereas you get the sense that it won't really bother and rescue. Yeah, but she also yeah. probably doesn't have the endorsement appeal as an Osaka, especially with like you always talk about the 2020 Olympics coming up. I don't think that she's, you know, Osaka's this. Right, but just from a sort of some of this is just from a time perspective. I mean, it's takes time out of your schedule and out of your yeah. practices. Every photo shoot and every Omega Watch ad that mm-hmm. has a material impact on how you're apportioning your time in terms of tennis. But you know, these are these are good problems. Hopefully, she problems has you know good agent and manager who keep keep their eyes on the tennis prize. 
The um, she also won more. She won more money at the U.S. Open than she has for her career. Well, that's so three point eight million uh, for a nineteen-year-old. That's not super yeah, surprising. Exactly. That's I mean, true. Yeah. Considering considering too, this was like her twelfth tournament ever played. Oh well, that, I mean, considering that she did win Indian Wells and and did win another Masters, that actually you know what what is the prize money for for winning a, a Masters? One th- is it the same for the men and the women? Oh, now you've stepped up. I, I don't. I don't mean to. It's a, just a genuine um, question. It depends. Um, Indian Wells is the same. Canada is not. Okay, that's a discussion for another time. I was just just um, asking a question. No, no loaded no, content. That's one there. of these. Uh, the it, it is. You know, well, know. go down that rabbit hole another time. But no, for for the record, uh, she did not win as much for winning. Toronto is Rafael Nadal won the same weekend for winning Montreal. Discussion for another time. Um, how do you feel? I mean, I, we were talking about this last night on, on the show. It's kind of... Do, do we like the fact that it's uh, September 9th and it does seem like everything now in the season has a bit of a flavor of anticlimax? Or, or You're saying the rest of the year? Yeah, I mean, er, yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody's like, oh, see you in Australia. And you, part of you wants to say, wait a second, there are a lot of points up for grabs and there are a lot of important events and there are tour finals for both the men and the women. And yet deep down you kind of get it, and it's sort of yeah. see you in Australia? It's the same thing we have in golf. Uh, you know, trying to come to terms with a, a climate and an atmosphere where really the only thing that matters to the best players in the world is the majors. You, you've written about this, but, you know, seeing more and more people skip events, it's clear that they tr- they, they treat every event that's not a major, um, as, the established players, as a tune-up. Um, and I think that's, that's what this notion is of, like, we'll see you in Australia means that there's really... If you buy into that line of thinking, then there's only really four events that matter the entire year, um, and, and there's there's you know that, that's understandable because there's you can't care you can't ask the general sporting public right. to pay attention. No, there has to be some scarcity. There has to be some scarcity, and I think also the off season makes the on season, for lack of a better word, more attractive when you, when you've had a break and you're starved and you're hungry for action. It's nice when this comes around in, in January, um, but I think that you know the, the true tennis fans will won't tune out. I, I don't. I think it's. It's more of you lose the eyes of the general sporting audience, but that's going to happen no matter what, no matter when the you know the major right. season ends. You know, we have um, you know we, we have a Labor Cup, we have this new Davis Cup, where I think there's a lot of curiosity as much as anything else. The women go to China to compete for unprecedented amounts of prize money in their year-end championships, mm-hmm. and the men are, are back in London. Um, all right, last question for you, Dan Rappaport. As uh, as a twenty something, are you millennial? Do we count you as millennial? Are so you I, even younger than millennial. I am borderline Gen Z, yeah. but I think I am technically still. I think it's end of ninety four is millennial, and I'm December ninety four. All right, so thoroughly, I'm millennial. I'm no, millennial. Thoroughly depressed me. Um, so let me ask you, as uh, as someone young and hip to these things, can you have a wedding and invite Roger Federer, but not Novak, <laughs> if you're Rafa Nadal? Discuss. No. no. All right. Absolutely not. <laughs> you invite Novak, but you put it on a date where you know he already has a in a, in a, uh, a commitment, so he doesn't show up. But you you want to say that you were able to invite him? I, I think you just blame everything on your in laws. Yeah. Um, all right. That uh, that does it. Thanks for uh, thanks for stopping in. I wanted to um, you know you and I are both going on very little sleep, and this final ended not twelve hours ago, but. Good to get. It's like a good uh, journalistic exercise. You know, when you do an interview and you just go home and start typing because while thoughts are fresh and yeah. uh, emotions are still roiling, you want to get that down. So glad, uh, glad we could do this. Sure. Thanks for having me.
All right, thanks to uh, Young Dan Rappaport. Follow him on uh, on Twitter. Follow his work, up-and-coming young journalist. And uh, he wrote uh, two great pieces over the weekend for SI.com on the men's and women's finals. That will do it for this week. I'm John Wertheim. This is a Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. You can get this wherever podcasts are sold, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. We will have an in-studio guest, I'm told, next week. Until then... Um, Go back to the real world after two weeks of uh, U.S. Open and have a good week, everyone.